I'm glad to be here tonight, and I hope you're glad to be here too. I want to ask you a question. Did you think about Jesus today? Did He ever cross your mind? No, you had a lot of things to think about, didn't you? End of the work week, it's hot. We're going to get to church tonight. You had a lot of things to think about. Did you think about Jesus? I hope you did. He thought about you today. He were on His mind. What I want to talk about a little bit this evening is I want to talk about the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as, as we begin, I want to ask you to imagine just for a moment that instead of coming to church tonight, you went to the movies. You like to go to see a movie on a big screen? Now, I don't know where you like to sit. We like to sit about two-thirds the way back, right in the middle. That's our favorite places to sit. I don't know, but let's assume when you go to this movie, you get to sit in your very favorite seat. Maybe you like to be right up front. I don't know. But you're sitting in your very favorite seat. You're there with those you love the most. Your very favorite people in the whole world are just sitting right around you. And as you look around, you start to notice that this auditorium is packed. I mean, every seat is taken. Now remember, you're not here at church tonight, you're at a movie. And every seat is taken. And as you look around and start to notice, you start to realize that, well, there's relatives of your... In fact, all of your family is here. Cousins aunts and uncles that you hadn't seen in ages, your relatives that live a long way off, they're all here. Not only that, everyone who lives on your block, in your neighborhood, they're all here. And the people you work with, people you go to school with, all of your friends are here. From all, if you've got friends in the church all around the United States, they're all here. Those of us who know people from Nigeria, they're all here at this movie. Even your enemies. Now somebody that doesn't like you, they're here. And I mean this place is packed. It is, every seat's taken. There are people all in the aisles. There's people standing against the walls. The back is crowded. People are crowded up to the windows and the doors looking in to try to see. That would be quite an experience, wouldn't it? Can you imagine what that would be like? You know what movie is going to show tonight? This is the premiere showing of your life. This is about you. The movie is about your life. And you know, here in just a few minutes, we're going to put up on this screen in front of everyone you know everything that you have ever done. All of it. The stuff that just you and one other person did and you didn't think anyone else knew. Stuff that you did behind a closed door. The stuff that you looked around and made sure no one was watching. 
We're going to see you look around and make sure no one's watching. And then we're going to see everything that you've ever done. You excited for this movie? We're going to do better than that. We're going to put 50,000 watts of THX Dolby Stereo behind every word you have ever said. Everything you ever said to anyone and also the stuff you said like this that you didn't want anyone to hear. The stuff you said as you were stomping off going the other way under your breath. We're going to make it good and loud with subtitles so everyone knows exactly what you said. Oh, now are you excited about this movie? Oh no, we're going to do it better than that. We're going to get even better because we are going to put up here in living technicolor everything you ever thought about doing. Every motive, every intention of your heart, every imagination that you ever had of imagining doing something, we're going to put all of that right up here in front of everyone for us all to see. Now let me ask you a question. When this movie is over, are you going to get up and take a bow? I'm out of here before the credits start rolling. Aren't you? I don't want everyone to know everything I've done. We've all got skeletons in the closet, don't we? Okay? We've all got stuff. In fact, the truth is, if you all knew everything there was to know about me, you wouldn't let me preach tonight. And if we knew everything there was to know about you, we wouldn't let you in. <laughs> in, in am I telling the truth now? Why does a thought like that bother us? Because we're all guilty of sin. We've all done stuff that we are flat ashamed of. And we don't want that known. Because sin is shameful. And it produces guilt. And you know what is amazing is that Jesus talked about this movie when He was alive. In the book of Luke, Jesus said this, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither is anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Nothing is secret. Everything is going to be manifest. you know what that means? That means God has that movie and God is going to show it to everyone who's alive and who's ever lived. So all of your secret things, someday I will know all of your secrets. And someday, you will know all of my secrets. Now, that puts a different perspective on life. Puts a different perspective on the things that we think about on a daily basis, doesn't it? You know, the Bible tells us that God and man are separated by sin. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hid His face from you so that He will not hear. 
You have been separated from God by sin. You say, well, now you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. I don't know the specifics of what you've done, but I know you've sinned. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Shake your head if you've heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Okay. One of the Ten Commandments is don't lie. Have you ever told a lie? Don't do this because that's another lie. <laughs> You've told a lie, haven't you? One of the Ten Commandments is don't lie. Another one of the Ten Commandments is don't steal. Did you ever take anything that didn't belong to you? Ever? Yeah, we've got some honest young folks here. You have. Another one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I go, whoo, I didn't do that. Hope not, but Jesus said it this way. If you look on someone to lust after them in your heart, you've committed adultery with them already. Ever lusted after anyone? So are you a good person? Are you good? By your own admission, you're a lying, thieving adulterer. Is that good? And when you stand in front of the Almighty God and He looks at you, is He going to say, you're guilty? Or is He going to say, you're innocent? What's He going to say? He's going to say, you're guilty, right? And your sin separates you from God. Because God is holy. God is righteous. Heaven is a perfect place. And God cannot and God will not allow imperfect people to come in and mess up heaven. God will not tolerate sin. God will not look the other way at sin. And sin has separated us from God. You know what the, the consequence of sin is? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, we're not talking about physical death because little babies die. They're not guilty of sin. We're talking about the sin that Revelation calls the lake of fire, which is the second death. That's what the Bible, that's what God says happens to a person who commits sin. And every one of us has honestly confessed in our own hearts, if not out loud that we're guilty of sin. See, that's not a good place to be. We've all committed sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if you've done wrong, if you've committed sin, what is there you can do about it? You have to say, well, I can, I can say I'm sorry. Well, that's, that's great to say you're sorry. Does that fix the sin? Does that fix it? We've talked a couple of times about my son being hit by that drunk driver. Now, she's never reached out to us and told us she was sorry. But if she did, would that fix it? If she called us on the phone and said, hey, I just want you all to know I'm sorry for getting drunk and almost killing your son, would I go, huh, okay. Would that be fine? 
No, it's not fine. I'm sorry doesn't undo the sin. The problem we have with sin and God is that you and I can't unsin. If we could unsin, we could fix our problem, right? But we can't unsin. So once I've committed a sin, I'm separated from God and there's nothing I can do to fix it. But the gospel, the good news is that God loves you. I mean, He really does. I want you to think for a moment. Can you think of anyone that loves you? And that really loves you? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it great to have someone who loves you? God loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine, more than you can dream. We're all in the same boat. The church is not a showcase for saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. That's why you're here. You're here, and I'm here for the same reason, and that is we go to hell without Jesus. We need Him. We need His salvation. We need Him to care for us and to love us. And He does. He loves you so much that He sent His... Even knowing, and He knows. I mean, He knows all your trash. And He still loves you so much that He would tell His Son, I want you to go and live a perfect life And here's the plan. We'll kill you and punish you for their sin. And we'll give them credit for your perfect life. Can you imagine that kind of love? The kind of love that would do that for you, knowing what it knows about you? And yet that's the kind of love that God has toward you and I. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe He's the Son of the living God? I do. That's why I'm here. I believe that. And God loved the whole world so much that He gave His Son to die so that if we believe in Him, we could have eternal life. Not eternal death, Death is the punishment of sin. We can have eternal life. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good to you? That's really good to me. And Jesus Christ took that commission from God that was agreed to before the foundation of the world. And Jesus Christ Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. Jesus took your sin. And Jesus was punished for your sin. That lie that you thought about when I asked you if you told a lie, you ought to be punished for that. You should. But the truth is, you weren't punished for it. Well, you may have, if your parents caught you, you might have got punished for it. But spiritually speaking, Jesus Christ was beaten because of your sin. I mean, think about Jesus there at the cross and they've arrested Him and they've got Him 
there restrained and they've got this crown of thorns on his head and they're spitting on him and they're beating him and they say, You liar! And it was you that told that lie. And you know it was you. It wasn't him. That thing you stole. You thief! And it was you. No matter what sin it is that you committed, Jesus paid for that sin. Brothers and sisters, that's punishment we deserved. That's punishment that should have been ours. And that's a Savior. That's a God who loves you and a Savior who gave. He gave Himself for you. He died. He took that punishment. He drank that cup, that cup of fury that we talked about last night. He took that wrath of God for your sin and for mine. Do you believe that? Amen? What a wonderful, glorious, horrible thing. When Peter heard this or preached this message, the same one I've just preached to you, the people in that time, when they heard it, they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So they said, God loved us. Jesus died for us. Is there anything I need to do? Yeah, there is. There's something you need to do. Because... We all know that everyone has sinned and we also know that everyone will not be saved. Yet we know God died for everyone or Jesus died for everyone. God loved everyone. What's the difference between those who are saved and those who aren't? The difference is you have something you need to do. You need to be right with God. What is it He told them in response? You know this verse probably. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So you see, God loved, Jesus gave, and you repent and are baptized. Now there's, why did God choose baptism? I don't know. Maybe you can ask Him someday, but that's what He chose. He chose repentance and baptism. In repentance, what repent means specifically, it means you're walking this way and you decide, I'm not going to do that anymore. And you turn around and you walk the other way. It means you change your mind. Now listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. There's a lot of people in Texas, probably a lot in the Pearland area, who will tell you they're Christians and they keep walking the same way they were walking when they supposedly came to Christ. A lot of people who do that. A lot of people who say, come as you are and stay as you are. And the truth is, if you come to Jesus, you can't stay as you are. You can't have His death if you won't take His life. You have to have the life of Jesus as well as the death of Jesus Christ. And that's repentance. Now, I don't know all of you here tonight. There may be some here tonight who claim the name of Jesus but live like they're not Christians. I hope that's not you. 
Because that's not salvation. That's not you keeping your end of this bargain. That's not a relationship with God. Yes, come as you are. We all have to do that. But no, you cannot stay as you are. God calls you to change. No matter what your sin is, God calls you to forsake your sin. Walk away from that and live for Him and live like Him. That's what repent is. Baptism, I trust most of you have seen a baptism. It's very simple. We just take and we dip someone down in water. That's the word baptize literally means to immerse or to dip in water. And Paul explained that in Romans. He said, in baptism you're being baptized into the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, baptism is a physical showing that I accept the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I do, Colossians 2 tells us that the operation of God is to wash away my sin. To take away my sin. Now, if you have done that or are willing to do that, that is what the Bible says places you in Christ. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? That's what puts you in Jesus. Okay? Now there's a big Bible word for that. That big Bible word is justification. Justification simply means this. When God looks at you, He sees you as just. That's sinless, perfect, spotless, blameless without any fault or defect. You say, well, but I'm not really that way. I know. Neither am I. But you're in Jesus Christ now. And so when He looks at you, you know what He sees? He sees the perfect, spotless, blameless life that Jesus lived. You see, God made Him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He sees the righteousness of His Son when He looks at you. You are credited with the perfect righteous life of Jesus. And you are not punished for the wicked life that you've lived. In fact, Jesus was punished for that. So in a sense, you are changing places spiritually with Jesus Christ. That's justification. God takes you and He makes you just. And I want you to know that happens when you are baptized into Jesus Christ as a repentant believer. If you believe in Jesus and you'll give Him your life and you will walk with Him, you're willing to stand in front of others and confess that belief and be baptized into Jesus, the Bible says the operation of God is to wash away your sin at that time. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that good news? Isn't that wonderful? But that's not the only big word in the Bible. There's another thing that happens at that moment. Not only are you put into Jesus Christ, but the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is placed in you. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So not only are you put in Jesus, but Christ is put in you. The Bible word for that is sanctification. 
And you see, I've got it as an arrow going up here because it's a process. It's not just an event, but it's a process that lasts the rest of your life. As you live, you become more and more and more and more and more like Jesus because Jesus is in you. And you begin to think like He thinks. And when you think like He thinks, you're going to talk like He talks instead of the way you used to talk. And you're going to do like He did instead of the way you used to do. And you're going to look at life, at opportunities, the way He would look at that opportunity. And challenges and problems the way He would look at that challenge and problem. And it transforms you from the inside out. It's called sanctification. And the word sanctify, it's where we get the word saint. It specifically means made holy. And it's the process of you becoming holy just like Jesus in your real life. When I was a little boy, we'd go to church, and this may shock you, but I didn't always behave real well when I was a little fella. And my mama would grab my ear, and she would pull me up to her, and she would whisper in my ear, she'd say, Michael, you act like the young gentleman that you are. Some of you have heard things like that, right? That's the process of sanctification. God says, you act like who you are in Christ. In Christ, you're perfect, spotless, blameless, without blemish. Act like it. Live like it. And it's a process of growing and becoming like that. Now, you don't have to do that. You can choose that you don't want to become like Christ and walk away from this salvation that He's offered. Some people do that even after baptism. But it's my prayer and my hope that instead of trying to walk away, you try with all of your might to walk with Jesus so that eventually, someday, you and Jesus Christ can be joined together. Then we who are alive and remain together Remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. You know, God loves you. And He gave His Son. Jesus Christ died for you. The Bible is full of this story. It's not just in the Gospels. It's in the entire Bible. You know, there are many stories in the Old Testament that are shadows of this. One of my very favorites is the story of a guy named Mephibosheth. Now that is a mouthful, isn't it? Mephibosheth. Thankfully, my grandson is Oliver and not Mephibosheth. (laughs) Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. Now if you remember, King Saul was the very first king of Israel once they became a nation in the land of Canaan. He's their first king and he became wicked. He hated, he was so jealous of this young man named David. And Saul was, he started out a good guy, but he very quickly let the power go to his head. And he disobeyed God, he was rebellious against God, and God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to David. And he hated David. 
he hunted David. He threw a spear, a javelin at David and tried to pin him to the wall. I mean, he hated him. Because David was this next chosen one and David was really popular. I mean, they sang this song, Saul has killed his thousands and David killed his ten thousands. And that just got all over Saul. But David had a best friend and his best friend was a guy named Jonathan who happened to be Saul's son. So Saul, who hates David, his son is David's best friend. And David tells Jonathan one day, he says, Jonathan, your dad hates me. He's trying to kill me. Jonathan goes, no way. Not dad. And David goes, yeah, it is. And he said, no, that can't be right. David said, it is right. He threw a javelin at me. And Jonathan says, let me go find out. So Jonathan goes in, talks to dad, and finds out that dad does hate him. And he wants to kill David. So they have this sign arranged because David's hiding out in the woods because he's afraid Saul will kill him. And Jonathan, the sign was this. He said, I'm going to come out and shoot my bow. And of course, he's the prince, so he has guys to go chase the arrows for him. And so he said, if I shoot the arrow when the boy goes out to get it, if I say, no, it's further, go on further out, that'll mean you need to run. And if I say, oh, no, it's back closer, that'll mean it's safe for you to come in. So he went out. And he shot this arrow, and it went And the boy took off, and he started yelling, It's further away! Go! Go! It's further out! And David heard that, and he knew. I was right. Saul's trying to kill me. So he waited around, and Jonathan and David, who were best friends in the world, sneak around and meet before David takes off. And they, they make a covenant with one another. And the covenant was this. Jonathan said to David, he said, David, I know God is with you. And I know that you're going to be king. And I know that God's going to deal with all of your enemies. And I want you to know that I'm going to serve you as king. Now this is the prince, the king's son. But he says to David, I'm going to serve you. Me and my house, we're going to serve you. We're going to follow you as king if you'll show us loving kindness. And David says, I will show you loving kindness. Not just you, but all of your family. I'm going to show you loving kindness. <coughs> well, David goes on his way. Saul hunts him for years. And eventually, Saul and Jonathan are killed the same day in battle. And word comes to David. Jonathan and Saul have been killed. So David heads to Jerusalem to take the throne and be the king. But you know, it wasn't just Saul and Jonathan in this family. Jonathan had a wife. He had children. And you know what the new king always did when he took power from the old king? Get rid of all the kids so nobody will challenge you for the throne later. And they were all afraid. They said, David's coming. So they grab the kids and they go running out of the palace. And little Mephibosheth, who's about four or five years old, falls and the nanny that was taking care of him falls on him and his back was broken. And she scoops him up and he's screaming in pain and she just runs with him. And they go out and they live in a shack in the wilderness of Lodabar. 
And this young man, Mephibosheth, is raised by people who hate David and are terrified of David. And he's raised to think, David stole your throne. He stole your kingdom. You should have been king, but no. Now it's him. He's got your kingdom. You better hide. And David, when he becomes king and comes in, he immediately starts looking for Jonathan's family. And he says, where's Jonathan's family? I want to show them loving kindness. And everyone who knows is going, yeah, right. Loving kindness with a sword. You're not going to... And they hide. They don't tell him. It's a long time. He finally finds out. Some guy comes in and says, I know where Mephibosheth is. He's hiding in a shack in the wilderness of Lodabar. David said, go get him. And off go the soldiers. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are Mephibosheth. You're crippled. You've been living your life hiding from this tyrant who took your kingdom from you and is the reason you're crippled. And you're sitting there that morning and drinking your morning orange juice and reading your Jerusalem Times magazine or whatever it is you might be doing that morning. And you hear the sound of horses outside the shack. And you get up on your crutches and you get over to the window and it's David's royal guard. And they caught you. After all this time, they caught you. And they take you, and they take you back to the palace, and they take you into the throne room where David sits up on his big throne, and they bring Mephibosheth in, and Mephibosheth comes in on those crutches, and he looks up and he sees David. He just throws his crutches to the side, and he lands flat on his face, and he says, I'm a dead dog. Because he knows David's going to kill him. Probably with his own hand. But instead of the wrath of David, he hears the footsteps of David as he runs to him and kneels beside him. And he says, Mephibosheth, are you Mephibosheth? And he says, yes, I am. He says, you're the son of Jonathan? And he says, yes. And he embraces him and he said, Oh, I've looked for you. I've longed for you. I've kept all of your daddy's lands, all of his houses, all of his servants, all of his money. It's all here for you. Oh, I'm so glad I found you. You'll please move into the palace, won't you? And you'll eat dinner with me tonight, won't you? And Mephibosheth is going, What? Is this some kind of a joke? He says, why would you do this? And David explains to him why. Whoops. Whoa. David said to him, fear not, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake. So David, in effect, said this to Mephibosheth. He said, Mephibosheth, it's not you. I'm not doing this for you because of you. I'm doing this because of your daddy. Your daddy was my best friend. And I have a covenant with your daddy. 
And that covenant was that his family would serve me as king and I would show loving kindness to them. And I've got a place set for you at the table tonight. Now at that moment, Mephibosheth had a choice. He could move into the palace, live according to the laws of David and recognize David as king and eat at the king's table or he can get up on his little crutches and go back and live in the shack in Lodabar. It's his choice. Now we find that what Mephibosheth did is he wisely chose to stay in the palace and eat with the king and take the lands and the houses and all that had belonged to his father and become a part of the family of King David. Now I'm sure you've already made the connections, but just in case someone hasn't, you've been a rebel against God. You've rebelled against Him. You have defied Him as king. You've wanted to be your own king. You've wanted to do life your way and do the things you wanted to do regardless of what God said. You've sinned. And now you know that God knows where you are. And you're before God. And you have this choice. And you look at God and you go, I don't know. God says, I love you. I love you. I sent my son for you. He suffered for you and died for you. Just come into the kingdom. I want you to be in my family. And you go, why would God do that? Why would he do that for you? And you know what his answer is? I'm not doing it for you. I have a covenant with your older brother, Jesus. And our agreement was this. If you would repent and move into my kingdom and recognize and follow me and accept the payment of Jesus for your sin, I will forgive you, give you loving kindness, and welcome you into the family of the Almighty God of the universe. That's your choice. Do you want to do that? Do you want to be right with God? Do you want to have that relationship with the Father? God loved you. He sent His Son. Jesus died for you. You must repent and be baptized. Are you willing to do that? To have that benefit, that blessing? You know, God is not some cosmic sheriff that follows you around waiting for you to mess up so He can send you to hell. God loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. But He's not going to do that if you continue in rebellion against Him. If you get up on your spiritual crutches and go back to the desert of Lodabar, the wilderness of sin in this world, God's not going to force you into the kingdom. But if you're not in the kingdom, you'll die as an enemy of God. And you'll pay the wages for the sin that you've committed. Our message to you tonight is you've been offered the greatest thing in the world. You've been offered to be adopted into the family of God. But you need to repent and be baptized if you're willing to live your life that way.
If you've not done that and would like to tonight, we offer the song of invitation. Come to the front while we stand and sing.